As I have often told you before, I tell you again now, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose destiny is destruction, whose God is their appetites, who glory in what they ought to be ashamed of, whose mind only is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Hello and welcome to Nightlight. In the face of our current multiplied and multiplying crises, it's vitally important to resist any feelings of impotence that would lead us towards any sort of passive inaction. The feeling that says, well, I can't change everything, should never lead to the idea that I can't change anything. When we feel overwhelmed by the seeming flood of stupidity and evil, there's always one place we can go. So it seems wise to consider what we can change. What area do we have access to? Now, the answer to that question is so often given by pastors and motivational speakers that it becomes cliche, and therefore, we go deaf to it. So, let's try to raise the volume on this here and now. The one thing we all have access to dealing with that will make an eternal difference in the outcome of this current spiritual warfare is our own personal walk with God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I told you, we all know that that's the cliche answer, so we go deaf to it. But recently, I've had to face some things in me. Now, I know it's dangerous to make our own private subjective experience a topic for public consumption, especially when the implication you may get from what I'm going to say is, well, this is what happened to me, and I think it would be good for you to consider. But the fact is, I do believe that what is happening to me, in me, with me, subjective though it may be, is worth considering. If I am in any way a watchman, then what the Holy Spirit in any way uses my efforts to help you in your part of the war then I would be remiss if I didn't share with you my most recent encounters with what he's dealing with me about. Let's not make the fatal error of thinking that since we cannot be directly effective on all battlefronts, that we must then simply retreat into some private realm of secret, non-confrontive pietism where we spend all our energies on our own inner sanctum and working on our own squeaky white cleanness while the world just goes to hell Reject that idea entirely. The truth is the very opposite. God is never calling us to retreat when he pulls us away to deal with us. When we feel the only battlefront we are capable of entering is the one inside our own hearts, then that is happening so that God can bring us to the place where we can engage the outer battle with more effectiveness. God will take whatever means and time necessary to bring each one of us into closer and more intimate union with himself. He does this for two reasons, obviously. Number one, because it has always been his intention that we would eventually come to belong totally and undividedly to him. 
And two, that in belonging fully and undividedly to him, we would then manifest his saving, healing presence in the earth unhindered. Now these two items are not listed in rank of importance one over the other. They are one and the same. You could say it like Jesus said it. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same principle. Loving God undividedly is what enables us to love our neighbor and also to confront our world. We do not have the power to effectively confront our outward cultural evil by words alone and have not for decades now because there's a huge deficit in Christian culture. And what is that deficit? That we are not allowing the cross to do its work in our own inward private evil. We may be born again, saved, on our way to heaven, whatever term you want to use, but our effectiveness to overthrow evil here and now is obviously severely limited because we do not understand the call of the cross that goes beyond our initial conversion because we have embraced the outer cross at our conversion which delivers us from damnation but have sought to escape the inner cross that slays our carnal, selfish, old nature. We are so subject to the world, the flesh, and the devil that we are impotent in our ministry to the outward world. So God is going after the crippling inner mixture, not only for our personal sakes, but for the sake of the world that is dying for us to get real. Lately, I've been asking God particularly to guide my reading, to not allow me to waste time or energy on anything that is not on his agenda where I'm concerned. After several weeks, I could not help but notice a pattern in everything I was reading. A clear call to the cross was evident all throughout, even if it was on a subject that didn't seem to be directly related to the cross. It seemed to not matter what I picked up or listened to or what conversations I was engaged in. The theme was repetitive and clear. And I realized God was answering my own prayer for direction, not only by guiding my reading, but by revealing in that reading what the high priority is in his heart for me. There are things in me that have been awaiting their time of execution at the inner cross, and it seems their time of death has finally arrived. It's not that I've been willfully tolerating secret sin. I've not willfully or consciously embraced a falsely self-comforting view of grace, which would tell me that, quote, God understands it's all under the blood. He'll fix all that eventually that is unfinished in you at the resurrection. Now, that God does understand and is patient and loving and that he will complete us at the resurrection is all true. But no consciously committed disciple of Jesus just haphazardly counts on that while merely tolerating ongoing sinful patterns. We all seek to obey the best we can, but we all know of aspects of our character which are not in line with his in which the general daily disciplines of Christian life have not seemed to been effective in correcting. And we know we cannot address them because we have probably tried. 
And we sure know that we cannot address all of them at once. It is impossible. We know we have to entrust that into his hands. Whatever ongoing process, and thankfully it is a process, whatever ongoing process may be necessary to bring us to the point in our lives where we are really changed more into his likeness, we have to entrust into his grace. We must be brought to the place where we can truly recognize things in us which are not in line with his character, but also that it is only when the Holy Spirit is ready that we are able to even see them. Things which were tolerable or may have even become what we considered just the way I am may suddenly or slowly become unbearably despicable in our own eyes. It's not necessarily because we willfully ignored his previous conviction. That may be the problem, but it may not be. When we come under deep conviction over an area of our lives we have been previously ignoring, it may not be because we just didn't give a rip. No, we may have even had a pang or two now and then over it. But unless and until the Holy Spirit puts his finger on that issue, we are powerless to see it, much less deal with it. It takes grace to be sanctified, just as surely as it takes grace to be initially saved. But when he begins to move on that neglected area, we are foolish if we don't take heed to it and ask for his grace in that area to be brought to bear upon it. Then, by faith, through grace, we receive the saving power of God in that area of our life, just like we received salvation initially. We appropriate the power of God to move into that particular area of his dealing with us by humbly asking him to do it by faith, and he will. And we exert that faith by saying out loud what God says. He has promised that he would, quote, put a new heart and a new spirit in us and remove from us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and that he would cause us to walk in his ways, Ezekiel 36 26 and 27. We say that out loud. We confess it. We thank him for it. We begin to praise him for his grace in those areas. We've often read those words as merely a prophecy of the new covenant. Then we have assumed that once we were born again, that that was all done. We then are just to wait for the resurrection when all will be put right in us. And between our new birth and the resurrection, we're just to muddle through falling and repenting and falling again, or worse, falling and just considering that that's just the way things are until the death, and we never bother repenting anymore just because we know we'll just fall again. All sorts of completely unscriptural ideas then follow to support that thinking. <clears throat> we end up making statements to ourselves and to each other that we are Quote, all sinners, we're all still fallen. We can't expect perfection in this life. And since all those statements are partly true, we take them to be the whole truth. This is why we can then ignore the many scriptures which call us to a much higher place in this present life before the resurrection. This is why the church in the West is so painfully weak and impotent, embarrassingly inept, 
and unable to confront the crisis of this present age. We cannot speak truth to power because we are in so many aspects of our private lives participating in the same spirit of the world that the powers operate in. Thankfully, God in His grace and faithfulness is not allowing us to go on that way. He's moving to shake us, awaken us, cleanse us of this error, and equip us for war. When this dealing of God begins, it may be a bit like this. What we once treated as mere weakness suddenly becomes clearly shown to us as an area of self-willed stubbornness. What we liked to think of as harmless flaws all of a sudden become to us glaring dangers. Aspects of our behavior we assumed to be no worse than most other folks begins to appear under the increased shining of the light of God as manifestations of the old man which God has decided it's time to expose as no longer tolerable. And maybe most important of all, things we once just thought were not fixable become in the light from the cross as much a part of what Jesus died to save us from as was saving us from hell. For those once tolerable sins will begin to have the smell of hell about them and that smell will become intolerable. What brings about this change, whether sudden or gradual? If we are the sort of people who, for whatever reason, are far too sensitive about our own failures, if we are, for instance, the type person who was raised in a background of harsh legalism and have spent our entire life in morbid introspection so that we never feel forgiven, we never feel loved or accepted or blessed, then for such a person as that, the increased work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit would probably be more in line with a gradual awakening or even a sudden awareness of all of the positives of, of God's heart towards us so that the weight of false guilt begins to fall off and a greater freedom becomes more conscious. We sense uh, in ourselves more peace and freedom and our relationship with the Lord becomes more comforting and more real. An overtly burdened soul who is suffering under the weight of hyper-religious guilt will never be stricken by the Lord with an increase of suffering. Just the opposite. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. I will never leave you or forsake you, or just some of the invitations to heal the heart of such a wounded person. But for most of us, we're not in that category, are we? For most of us, we've been raised in the opposite culture, whether family or church or just general culture, which has so soft-pedaled the nature of our sin and taken so lightly the depths of our fallenness that we almost think it would be politically incorrect for God not to save us, for heaven's sakes. And we expect him to keep carrying our best interests at his heart, whether we carry his and ours or not. So it takes years of slow, patient, but unrelenting focus by the Holy Spirit. 
before we can be raised up high enough into our true self to look down and see what depths we have been delivered out of. And it takes the same work of the Spirit to help us begin to hate aspects of the old life that are still hanging on. I know, we thought it was all taken care of at the new birth. That's because the church has so failed to teach scripture regarding these issues. In many churches, if you were to go by what is preached Sunday after Sunday and what is believed by the general population of the church, you would think that the Bible only consists of a couple of pages. On one is printed John 3.16, then there's a little bit about heaven, and then some about tithing so we can keep the light bill paid. In other churches, those verses I just mentioned would have added to them maybe a few name it and claim it scriptures and all of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 regarding the gifts of the Spirit. But what is glaringly absent in the lives of, I think I can say, most Christians are all those chapters on the work of the cross after initial salvation. From Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, Hebrews, I guess I need not go on and on. Am I in any way dishonoring the eternal value of John 3.16? Well, of course not. But to make initial things the only things is as irrational as to try to make a person's date of birth the only aspect of their life that matters. Now, in one sense, it's true that the birth of someone is the most important day in their lives since without being born, nothing else would ever happen. Duh. But the obvious fact is not worth even citing. Birth is only valuable because it leads to life. He who has begun a good work in us intends to finish it. He is the author and the completer of our faith. Unto him who is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, be honor and glory forever. He has given us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the intimate knowledge of him so that the eyes of our hearts are to be flooded with light so that we might come to know intimately the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, to come to know the love of Christ which surpasses mere human knowledge so that our ultimate end is to become filled with all the fullness of God, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know when he appears and we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we now in this present world. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, so that we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me to live now is Christ, and to die is gain. May I never boast in anything except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified to the world, and the world is presently crucified to me. For we know that our old man was crucified with him on the cross, so that we no longer serve sin. Well, I could go on weaving in many, many other scriptures till I've quoted the entire New Testament that refers to our destiny in Christ to become like him, but I would be quoting, as I said, most of the book. But all these verses are rooted in the initial 
and then the ongoing work of the cross in us, beginning with the new birth, but carried on throughout our lives as we are brought to the end of ourselves over and over and brought to the cross again and again. The cross is not only the place of forgiveness, it is the place of death. The power of the cross does not just forgive the sins of the past, but brings the sin nature to death in order that the new life in Christ may come forth. How long or how difficult this process may depend on our response to the wooing of the Spirit. One of my early teachers used to ask us, why do you think it took Moses 40 years in the desert? We waited with bated breath and notebooks open and pen in hand to capture the revelation. What was it? Why was Moses in the wilderness for 40 years? Because God couldn't do it in 39, he said. <laughs> now that may seem like a non-answer, but it's actually very revealing. It took time for God to work into Moses the character needed to carry on his calling. We always need to be careful when we say God couldn't do something. Of course, God could turn Moses into an automated machine. Obviously, he didn't want that. He much preferred to allow Moses to respond so that the finished product is a real human being whose choice to embrace God's way are really and truly his own choices, yet which lines up also with God's predestined purpose for him. From God's point of view, the symbolic number 40, which all through Scripture points to testing, is in God's mind a predetermined time period but for Moses, it was a matter of being brought to the point of choice, making the right choice, and becoming transformed in that process into who God wanted Moses to be. And that same process goes on in us. We're not merely legalistically transformed at the new birth and then passively sit around waiting for death. Moses may have been able to have shortened the process depending on his responses. We can too. But God won't do it in less time than it takes to do it. And he who has begun a good work in you will complete it no matter how much time or pressure it takes. The process necessary for our sanctification is as much dependent on the work of the cross as was our initial salvation. And for any of us who have lived very long with the Lord, we see a clear pattern. God deals with us about some issue by turning up the light on that issue. We either respond to that light in faith and obedience, or we don't. If we don't, a process is set in motion that brings us to the end of our self-will. Why does God do it that way? Because he does not want robots or mindless oafs. He wants sons and daughters. So he brings circumstances to bear upon that particular aspect of our life and character in order that we will begin to cry out for wisdom, for discernment, for understanding, for cleansing, in order that we might begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This change in our point of view is now arising out of our free choice of his way over our way and is being awakened by the pressure of circumstances God either allows or, when necessary, engineers. God gets what he wants. Our freedom to choose is intact, while at the same time our character is transformed.
into his image. If we cling to him in the often very painful process, because it means our giving up self-comforting patterns of life, God is honored and blessed by our faith toward him. If we rail and complain, it only shows how right it is that God is going after that aspect of our character, for it is evidently just as infected with corruption as he decreed that it is. We prove that by how much we scream when he touches it. So the more we trust him and express our trust by words of thankfulness and expressions of love, the faster he's able to bring us out of the process of pain and into the fruit of freedom. Now, obviously, I don't mean smooth God with nice talk and he'll release the pain. No, when we really are able to give thanks to him because we understand what he's doing and why, the faster we do that, the quicker we can emerge. We emerge from the death side of the cross to the life side of the new resurrection. Now this same process happens over and over in us, layer after layer. For some, it may have been a one-time initial crisis. The word crisis, by the way, means the place of the cross. But for most of us, it's not only a one-time event, but an ongoing ascending process. I'm greatly comforted when I read in the lives of older older saints their testimony of facing the cross over and over and how sometimes it took more than one confrontation, more than one time on the same issue, how often it took many years before they could be brought to the place of yielding. Think of how patient and faithful God is not to become disgusted with us. Malachi says he is a refiner who sits and carefully, compassionately watches over the refining process. He is confident that as he continues the cleansing heat, the impurities hidden deep inside us will rise to the surface. He will then scrape off that poison over and over until he can see his face clearly reflected in the gold, which is us. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Yes, but it is a mistake to think that that only refers to the resurrection day. He's at work in us now, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we behold his face, we are transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And he's calling us to not only come to the cross for initial salvation, but to take up our own cross daily and follow him. Now, what is our cross? Well, it's never his cross. We do not take up his cross. We cannot even come close to touching it, much less lift it. He never asked us to take up his cross. That belonged only to him, for he alone was able to lift it. There at his cross, the battle for the entire universe, as well as for each individual soul, was engaged, and only God as man could have engaged that battle. But because he did, we are then able to engage our own smaller battles. As Oswald Chambers said, salvation is so easy for us to obtain because it cost God so much. Any child, any soul, only needs to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But after that, the ongoing work of becoming who we were meant to be begins. Well, are you tired of being stuck? Are you ever 
made aware by the Holy Spirit that you are not living, that you are existing, surviving, or even worse, sliding back into old patterns of self-comfort in the old man. Maybe not in all areas, but any area is too much. Are you weary of the areas of failure? Then blessed are you. You're blessed if you are being made aware of your condition. That is grace working in and for you. Are you sick and tired from patterns of failure, temper, impure thoughts, or strained relationships? Well, blessed are you. God is at work bringing the fruit of the old nature up into your mouth so you can begin to become aware of how bitter it is. When you begin to hate it more than you are willing to tolerate it, blessed are you. For that is when the grace that saved you will then go to work transforming you in that particular area. When I first began to hear about inner healing in the early 1970s, I remember thinking, yeah, that's it. We need inner healing. And for some things, that's true. We do. I guess I was not wrong to think that. Some things in us are wounded and do need to be healed. And there's plenty of scripture to support it. Psalm 23, which most of us learned as children, refers to the shepherd restoring our souls. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, refers to himself as the one who will bind up the brokenhearted. But after living through over four decades of Christian life, I have come back over and over to the unfailing reality that it is not most often so much a healing that is needed in us as it is a death. And not merely a positional death, which is initially true, but the working of that death until it is manifested in our real lives, not just theologically, but actually. It is not that we need help so we can limp on in our old man's pain. But it is the full release of complete death to the old life that brings total and complete healing by total and complete annihilation of the old resulting in resurrection of the new. And this cycle goes on in all who are willing to trust the loving wise hand of the shepherd. The end result will be that we shall be like him. And how is he? He is holy. And that word holy is included every good that you might imagine or long for and beyond what you can even ask or think. So it is enough to be like him, to be holy. It's a happy linguistic accident that the word holy in English and the word whole, W-H-O-L-E, are the same root. So it might be said that inner healing is inner crucifixion of the old and resurrection of the new. But the things we draw false comfort from reside in the place where holiness should be. And if those things we draw false comfort from are allowed because they give us false comfort, it will obviously be uncomfortable when they are sighted and pointed out as bad, and it will be agonizing when they are really removed, until they are removed. We can go on for years and years quoting scriptures that our old man was crucified with Christ, and yet still be living out of that old man in actual experience. 
We want the cleansing process to be painless. But by its very nature, it cannot be. The chastening of the Lord, referred to in Hebrews chapter 12, is describing this very process. It's unfortunate that the word chasten brings to so many of our minds an imagery of punishment. That's not the only meaning, and in this context, that's not even the meaning at all. The word at its base literally means to cut away that which is excessive, to purge more than to scourge. Think of a sick body overloaded by excess fat. The chastening discipline which cuts away the sickly excess may feel punishing because it's certainly not comfortable and it does have pain. But obviously pain is not the main focus. It is certainly not for punishment, but for health and life. As we have referred to repeatedly, it matters what goes on in our imagination when we read Scripture. If we tend to form in our minds images from our past of oppressive authority figures who are more engaged in punishment as a means of control or shame or even sheer sadistic pleasure in causing pain, well, we're obviously going to run from the ongoing work of the cross while at the same time we're dishonoring the real God by imposing on him our false images that reject him for wrongs he is not even capable of doing to us, much less is guilty of doing to us. But, on the other hand, we may not struggle with wrong images of God as a punisher, yet still may be truly thankful for Jesus as Savior and look back at the shed blood of the cross as the source of our freedom from guilt and our deliverance from judgment. And that's all true and good. But if we only go there and no further, we end up with the Christianity which is now sadly commonly experienced and producing the impotent deformity that is American church life. Jesus died to forgive me, but Jesus didn't die to transform me. Jesus is my Savior, but Nobody is my Lord but myself. This is not only a human failure of biblical understanding, it is a satanic plot. For to embrace the cross for eternal salvation may save us in eternity, but to reject the working of the cross in us in this life leaves us stuck in ongoing sin and impotent in spiritual warfare. We strive and fall, make promises to do better and fail. And finally, as is happening all around now in the lives of millions of believers, not only give up ever seeking to change, but far worse, develop new theologies which seek to make our sin okay. The failure of the church to preach the whole counsel of God has produced the weakest, most watered-down, most impotent embarrassment of Christian faith in the history of the church. There is a clear reason why the Laodicean church is listed last in the seven churches of Revelation. It is the church age Paul warned us about, which would have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof in 2 Timothy 3. So we are left floundering about in worldly sophistry, trying to find what kind of new gimmick we can come up with to market the gospel while we apologize for those mean old preachers of the past who called men and women to repent, to come to the cross, to die to self, and to live new lives in Christ. 
Now we are free from all of that cross and blood and repentance and divine judgment stuff. We only need to know God loves us just like we are. And any and all forms of love are okay. Here, have a little latte and buy our new worship band CD. Like my cross, it's made of gold. No, not gold tried in the fire, mind you, just gold-plated for marketing purposes. We don't put too much emphasis on that gold tried in the fire stuff kind of gold. We don't like the old rugged cross stuff either. That makes folks uncomfortable, and we're all about giving comfort. Even if it's false comfort and leads eventually to destruction, God is only about love, and love is whatever our fallen emotional neuroses defines love to be. So God is created in our image and likeness. He obeys us now. We don't have to obey him. In fact, did you know that worship is not even about him? It's about us. We worship for our own sakes. I know you wish I was exaggerating, but you know I'm not. I just described the majority of American Christianity. The proof of that truth is that if the 80% of Americans who claim to be Jesus followers are really following him, then this nation should be transformed. But the real facts are that of that 80% who claim to be Jesus' followers, a large number do not believe he is the only way to heaven, do not believe his death was an atonement for sin, do not believe in coming judgment, and do not believe that any sexual sin of any kind is sinful. They are not Christians. They are those who eventually will say to him at the last day, Did we do this, that, or the other in your name, even miraculous things, even casting out devils? And he will say, Depart from me, you practitioner of iniquity. I never knew you. So God is allowing the mixture to produce its rotten fruit. Why? Because historically it is repeatedly true that once the people of God allow such mixture we no longer have the ability to tell truth from lies anymore. And we don't even want to try to discern truth from lies anymore. Then we just continue to settle for the comfortable status quo because that comfortable status quo makes a lot of room for a lot of secret sin in the name of grace. So God has to allow the rot to go far beyond what we might think he would allow before we reach the point of crying out for God himself to come. Only then, at the point of such crying out, is there any hope of restoration for the good and the true. Now, we obviously are not anywhere close to that as a nation, but are we anywhere close to that as individuals or as local churches? Only you and God know. I spoke this week with a trusted and respected pastor, a faithful man of God who does not compromise the gospel either in his message or his lifestyle. He told me with sorrow in his eyes and his voice of the number of people in his congregation who always vote according to their pocketbook, never according to their moral conscience. They have managed to completely separate economic issues from the murder of the unborn or the desecration of the marriage bed. Just like the people of Jeremiah's day, they have conveniently made a place for the worship of both Yahweh and Baal. They worship Yahweh on Sundays and serve Baal at the ballot box. Their self-deception is so deep and complete that they rail at anyone who calls them to explain their duplicity. Their excuse? 
Well, abortion and homosexuality are not political issues. They're moral issues. What does that sophistry even mean? The German Lutherans made the same mindless error to their eventual horror of shame. Hitler is good for the economy, the Jewish stuff we ignore. The economic advantages offered by the left are all that matter. The killing of babies and sex in every aberrant form that is being shoved down the throats of godly people, including school children, we can ignore that. Those aren't political issues, even when they are engineered by the politics that they're voting for. A people who are truly following the Lord Jesus, not only to the cross, but through the cross, not only for initial soul salvation, but for inner transformation, would not have such a total contradiction of evil mixture in their lives if they were following the Lord Jesus. But American Christianity is full of such evil mixture because we have not embraced the full message of the cross. Another example, the number of abortions in this country cannot be accounted for without a large portion of Christians participating in the ongoing murder of children. The same with porn. The same with many other evils we might recount. We do not believe, just as Judah did not believe, that God will eventually come to the end of his patience with such blasphemy. We say, we have the temple. We have the temple. God wouldn't dare judge us. But the opposite was and is still true. It is because we have the temple, so to speak, because we have the word, because we have the advantage of Christian heritage and the freedoms and blessings which it has produced that has come to us because of that truth. It is because of those things we are in such grave danger. To whom much has been given, much will be required. So if your private life has been or is being shaken, if your sense of the blessing and peace of God seems to have been severely diminished, if you're becoming suddenly more deeply aware of areas of your life in which long-standing secret sin has been not only tolerated but even embraced, while you have taken refuge in a false idea that grace will cover it, if any or all of this is true in your life, Blessed are you. God is dealing with you as with sons and daughters. He's bringing his judgment first to the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17. The word judgment, remember, doesn't mean destruction. It means to put in proper order. He is putting us in proper order first so that we can then bring a word of authority and power to the nations. We cannot speak with any power when we are part of the iniquity when we vote it in, when we live in its spirit or indulge in its idolatry, we will be partakers of its plagues, Revelation 18. When it comes to end-time prophecy, it has come to my mind strongly lately that it may not just be a variation of point of view, but an actual satanic deception that has us so focused on subjects related to the end of the age that we miss the point completely of what the Holy Spirit is trying to show us. For instance, I just made reference to Revelation chapter 18. Come out from among them, my people, that you be not participants of their evil 
and that you do not therefore become a recipient of their plagues. Is that something for the future that we need to be on the guard to watch for that hasn't already happened? Or is that a word of warning that could have been applied throughout the church age since it was written? The same with the mark of the beast. Gosh, how many times have we suffered under the new revelation that somebody's gotten and books printed and teachings put out about who the Antichrist is and what the mark of the beast is? And I don't mean to be disrespectful to the honest scholarship that may have been behind some of those, although some of them are manifestly foolish. But what does 666 really mean? Does the Bible have any commentary on its own merits that we can learn from? Especially with regard to what I'm trying to address here with the failure to embrace the cross and the continued ongoing flesh life that seems to be plaguing the body of Christ and making us impotent? Six is the number of man. There's lots of reasons for that, but rather than pursue all of those details that might bore us, simply stated, Book of Revelation states it clearly, six is the number of man. Three sixes, three is the number of God. What would three sixes be? It would be man trying to be God. Six falls short of seven, which is completion. Man in his incompleteness, man, the glorious ruin, falling short of the glory of God. Where is the mark of the beast found? In the head, which is a picture of the thought processes, and in the hand, which is a picture of the actions. So what is the mark of the beast well, the word beast is therion. It's actually wild beast. And the picture there is of the wild, rebellious, monstrous inhumanity of the system that tries to be God without God or in, 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 in rebellion against God. Antichrist doesn't just seek to uh, be against God. He seeks to replace him. And so what is the mark of the beast? I, I'm much more concerned about the present manifestation of it in the lives of people than I am about what kind of computer chip might be up ahead that won't let me buy or sell. It'd be, it would be typical of the, of the power of the dragon to seduce us into being so preoccupied with concepts of what could happen up ahead that are all conjecture and that make no real difference in the, the real issues of life. While all the while causing us to completely miss the clear and present danger that those of us who live with our minds and our actions cut off from God, living out of our fallen animal nature, living according to the appetites of the flesh, we are enemies of the cross who celebrate that which we ought to be ashamed of, who mind only things of this present earth, who have no conception of the eternal, 
who despise the call of the cross, the work of the cross, the preaching of the cross. For the cross nails, pun intended, our wickedness. The cross shows the penalty of sin and the the penalty as being what sin deserves. The cross is the place of death. It is the place of annihilation of the kingdoms of this world. It is the place of the destruction of the nature of the dragon. It is the place of judgment on man's sin. The symbol of the cross brought to mind to the early church not only the penalty for their sin, but the amazing sacrifice that God performed in order to deliver us from that penalty. What has the power of darkness managed to do to the cross? Turn it into a necklace, turn it into a a pendant, turn it into something pretty that sits on the altar between two golden candlesticks, turns it into something that uh, rock and rollers wear when they receive their awards for prancing around celebrating Baal. They wear crosses. Crosses are everywhere. Why? Because the spirit of Antichrist doesn't come to just annihilate God. He comes to replace him. How does he replace him? By weaving his way in and usurping and supplanting and seducing. Now, in the closing moments we've got, what can you do? Can't change the whole world. I know that. But you can sure be transformed into a man or woman who becomes effective for the transformation of your part of the world. But that can only happen if you're letting the cross do its work in you in relation to whatever aspect of your life the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on. I know what he's going after in mine, but my story is not yours. I would never presume to tell you what yours is, and I sure wouldn't let you know what mine are. (laughs) If you're around me much, you probably already know what they are. But he who has begun a good work in us will finish it. What do you do? How do you you make the great transition from the old to the new? What does it mean to go to the cross? What does that mean? If that's just poetic language to some people or theological language, what does it mean to go to the cross? It means to stand in what you know the cross represents and to go with the pain and the hurt and the struggle and the shame and the suffering and the the unfulfilled dreams and whatever it else is that the Holy Spirit is bringing up. You bring that into his presence. It takes time to do this. You have to set aside real time, real place, and focus on this in the presence of the Lord. You can't just carry it around in your head as a concept. You heard this message, and so you turn off the machine or whatever you're listening to, and you go on about your business saying, thank you, Lord, you're doing this in me while I focus on all kinds of other things. Stop what you're doing. Get before the Lord. Place yourself before him on purpose. Take off the phone Shut the, the windows, lock the doors, cut yourself off from people for as whatever amount of time it is required. Put yourself in the presence of the Lord and ask him specifically, Lord, come and do in me what I have not been able to accomplish, what I have not been able to do. That part of me that I've given up on, 
that I've just struggled against it until I can do no more. Maybe the Lord let you fail and fail and fail in that very area of your life so that you would come to the end of your ability to uh, be 666 for yourself. Maybe he wanted you to uh, run out of your ability to think it through or to act on your own. In your forehead and in your hand, you have nothing to bring. And you collapse utterly helpless at the foot of the cross. And then in that place, you hurt. You let the pain come up into the presence of the Lord. And in your mind's eye, see the Lord Jesus Christ taking into himself all in you that you cannot heal, that you cannot correct, that you cannot fix. And in that exchange, you re- he receives your brokenness and he imparts to you his blessedness. You give to him your sin. He gives to you his cleansing. You give to him your shame. He gives to you his blessedness, his his blessing, his affirmation, whatever the exchange needs to be. But don't rush in and rush out because you've let the pain get too great. Let the pain be great. Let the tears come. Let the scream come if it needs to. Let whatever comes up, let it come up. And if nothing is coming up, then take by faith that he is doing in you what you've asked him to do. Father, I thank you with all my heart that every man and woman listening to this message can go from listening to this message into your very presence, that you are with them now in their pain, in their struggle, in their disappointment, in their anger, in their lust, in their failure, in whatever aspect of fallenness or brokenness is still wielding power in their life to keep them from their full true self. Thank you, Father, for the release of the anointing of the Spirit to actually make real the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection power that brings us truly into our true self. We thank you for it, Father. Embrace the cross where Jesus suffered Though it will cost all you claim as yours Your sacrifice will seem small beside the treasure Eternity can't measure what Jesus holds in store. Embrace the love the cross requires. Cling to the one whose heart knew every pain. Receive from Jesus. Fountains of compassion Only He can fashion Your heart to move as His
the cross by steve green so to wrap this up (laughs) wrap it up try to bring it to some points that we can focus on practically what is the mark of the beast is it some dangerous thing that's up ahead of us that might uh, be imposed upon us by some one world government maybe so but is that as dangerous as the clear and present danger of a materialistic, self-centered culture that has been Christianized or a Christian culture that has been turned into a self-centered, materialist counterfeit of the real gospel that affects our thinking, that affects our actions, and that causes us to blaspheme the Lord and dishonor Him in ways that we don't even have a conscience about now in some circles. Maybe we can explore this a little more later on in times together. Maybe maybe I can show you evidence from Scripture that supports this. This is not just some idea of mine. It, it, there's a pattern in Scripture that warns of this antichrist beast nature that constantly seeks to seduce us and bring us back under its control or keeps us in a a, a place of submission to it because of an incomplete conversion or an incomplete understanding of the gospel. And the antidote to that poison is to fully embrace the cross, not only the cross that brings us to initial salvation, but the cross that brings us to the end of our self-centered life, the end of our carnal life, and brings us into the resurrection life of uh, Romans chapter 8. We've got to go beyond just knowing this theologically. We've got to go beyond just being able to talk about it and write articles about it and discuss it in Sunday school, And if we even do that. Usually it brings a crisis. And that, you know, I told you the word crisis is actually a place, uh, it's a Latin word for the, the place of the cross. A crisis in our life is a point of where our will crosses God's will, 
and we have to come to the cross and choose either to die on it and be resurrected or to go our own way and live in a self-centered carnality that will render us powerless in the face of the evils of the age. And then if there is a 666 up ahead, what what will we do if we haven't let the cross do its work in in our hearts to the point that we are not able to withstand the Antichrist pressures from without because we've not dealt with the Antichrist issues in, within? Well, God will show you these things. He'll, t- he'll if, if your heart is at all in a position to want to go beyond the weakness of our current Christian impotence, then the Holy Spirit will show you these things. May he help us all. And he who has begun a good work in us, he's promised to finish it. So he will help us. Thank you for listening. Lord willing, we'll be back together uh, in a few weeks. Bless you all. Thanks. Bye-bye.